And again, it's great to to be here. I have no plans of what I'm going to speak about this evening. I'm going to just say a few words and then see from your expressions whether I'm hitting the the uh, the mark or going beyond it. Uh, I think there's many people here, not just the meditators, but uh, other people here who must have come from outside. <coughs> so, uh, as many of you may know uh, of me, that I'm in a fortunate position uh, to have been trained uh, in the West and in the East. Uh, I did my preliminary Buddhism as a student. I was studying theoretical physics at Cambridge, so I could take that uh, scientific training and put it into Buddhism, going through a very strict training under Ajahn Chah in Thailand for nine years. And those were the times it was very strict, these days, they're Nambi Pambi cream puffs. It's not the same as the good old days. <laughs> so he went through that tough period, but he also now established monasteries in the West, or should I say the South, uh, which is uh, Australia, in the Western culture, and gone through all the problems of uh, developing those monasteries. Uh, you may know of me that I was uh, very instrumental in pushing Buddhism in the West forward, especially Theravada monastic Buddhism, with the ordination of the bhikkhunis a couple of years ago. The bhikkhunis is the equivalent of the full ordination for the the men. And of course, I think as many of you would probably agree, that it is just not acceptable to have any discrimination at all uh, in this beautiful Dhamma of the Buddha. And also, nor is it uh, good to have any discrimination between the different sects of Buddhism. Uh, as a teacher, I'm supposed to be a Theravada monk, uh, Thai-based, but nevertheless you move around the world and you associate with monks and nuns of all the different traditions, so much so that it's very hard for me to associate with any tradition and also because of the scholarship, the learning. Basically all those traditions have got no real basis at all. Buddhism is Buddhism is Buddhism. Dharma is Dharma is Dharma. Peace is peace is peace. Wisdom is wisdom is wisdom. It doesn't matter what tradition you're from. But one thing I did notice uh, in many uh, Buddhist uh, traditions, there was a lack of something. And because there was a lack of something, and that I really wanted to combine all the traditions of Buddhism, and just to forget these barriers between sects and gender, I decided to try and get a, a combination of the three major strands of Buddhism, to try and combine the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. So I took the H from Hinayana, the Aha from Mahayana, and the Yana from Vajrayana. And what did it spell? The Hahayana. And that is my vehicle. Come on, smile a bit more. Buddhists are far too serious, for goodness sake. You know, it is allowed to laugh. I recently, what was it, last February, gave a retreat in a Mahayana temple in Hong Kong. And after I finished my retreat, one of the Mahayana Chinese nuns came up to me and thanked me so much for coming. And there was a very simple reason why. She said that before I came, she was never allowed to smile or laugh. 
in the Chinese tradition, that was just you're not serious about your practice. But after I came and made people laugh and smile and show them that is an integral path of the path to enlightenment, then she said, now I can be myself, smile and laugh. Oh, what a relief. Please come again. <laughs> now, just to justify this, because I do know my Buddhism, no party, no the suttas back to front and the Vinaya, so that's part of my training too. In the Dharmachedya Sutta of the Majjhima if you look in the books, it's part of the Theravada scriptures. It's usually translated as the monuments to the Dhamma. And there was... Uh, an incident there, which I like to repeat, where King Pasenadi, who was a king of Kosala, one of the great kingdoms in the time of the Buddha, and his capital was at Sawati, which was just really within walking distance of the Jetawana Monastery, known Jetagrove Monastery, the place where the Buddha spent most of his time during his life. And at the end of the king's life, he was to die very soon, he went to visit that monastery just after doing his work. And when he went into the monastery, he asked the monks where the Buddha was. And the monks said he's in his hut, in his room. And he said, usually no one can go in, but because you're the king, maybe he'll let you in. Just as if I was in my room and Queen Elizabeth knocked, I think I would let her in. So, and she's in Australia at the moment. But the king knocked, and of course the Buddha let him in. And then the king started kissing the Buddha's feet out of great gratitude for having this immense spiritual advisor right close to his city. And then he expressed how much during his whole life he enjoyed coming to that monastery. And then the Buddha asked why. Why do you like coming to this monastery? And this is the important point. This is where the story leads up to. And the king said, because when I come into this monastery, all the monks and nuns are always smiling and happy. Yes, great king, that's what you would expect when the people are succeeding in their meditation and gaining insights. That is a sign of your wisdom. So to this day, when someone comes up to me and explains the Dhamma, it may be very profound and deep, but that doesn't cut any ice with me. Their wisdom gauge is this, their mouth. And if it's turned down on the edges, sorry, you're not wise. Even if it is level, sorry, you haven't got it yet. If it's turned up on the edges, right, you're getting somewhere. Now I'm saying that because it's really important. Sometimes without the joy in your practice and the joy in meditation, there's no engagement. Joy, happiness, is what binds your mind to its object. If you use force, willpower, you get stressed. Remember, force and willpower just makes for a stronger sense of self. It doesn't let go of anything. It just a greater sense of being a control freak. And there's too many control freaks I see in front of me. It's about time you let go some more. <laughs> and it is true. 
Because what happens is when you start letting go, leaving things alone, being peaceful, you find the mind does become incredibly still and happy. The usual story I tell, because I like to tell anecdotes because it explains these deep teachings in a very accessible form. The place where I live in Australia is on top of a hill. We built that monastery ourselves, what is it, 28 years ago now. And we decided to choose the top of a hill for a monastery because that's where holy people live, on top of hills. You never hear of a holy person living in a swamp. They live on top of mountains. With the exception, I was told, of Yoda. He lives in a swamp. But that's Hollywood, that's not real life. (laughs) Even this place is sort of raised up a bit. So well done. Tradition. Now, the hill on which my monastery is sited is about two and a half kilometers from the the bottom, from the foot of the hill where the road uh, begins. And for about seven years since I moved to that monastery, since we bought the land and start building it. I'd always gone up that hill in a vehicle, in a car, for seven years. And one day, it was a beautiful spring morning. It was warm and sunny. And I needed the exercise, as you can see. In Australia, Buddhism is expanding, and so am I. And, (laughs) okay, I'm just going to go on a tangent here. Those of you who are overweight, and there's a few here, Please laugh, because I saw in a medical journal, I still keep in contact with my science. If you laugh, your arteries and veins expand. They actually get bigger. If you get miserable and tense, upset, your arteries and veins actually contract. This is basic fact. So that if you're overweight and you get miserable, it means you get the double whammy all that gut going through your veins, and the veins are constricted, you get a coronary, you don't survive. But if you're fat and happy, it compensates. (laughs) Your veins are so large because you laugh a lot, which means all that rubbish can easily pass through, and you never die. That's why, isn't it so, you only see fat, happy people? Because all the fat, miserable people have uh, died so long ago. You never see them these days. <laughs> so it's good for your health. So anyway, back to that sort of walking up that hillside. As I walked up that hillside, for the first time in seven years, I was stunned. I could not recognize the hill. It was nothing like I remembered. I saw things which I never noticed before. Not just one or two things, heaps of things, so many, it looked totally different. And that was so surprising because, look, I lived on that, mount, uh, that hill. And I've been going up and down that road four, five, six times a week for seven years. And what was going on? Why couldn't I recognize it? And then I stopped. And as I stopped and stood still, the hillside changed again. And I saw deeper into what was out there saw more little rocks between the grass, 
to saw the different shades of grass, to see the lichen on the rocks, to see the tessellated bark on the trees. I saw so much more. And all that I saw was so beautiful. It was stunning, but also surprising. I thought, how come I haven't noticed that before? And again, being a scientist, I started to contemplate, you know, using basic biology, and realize this. When you look through the window of a speeding car, whatever's out there, the sight does not have time to form a proper image on your retina at the back of the eye. And then another image comes, dislodges the first, and then another image, and then another image. The images pass one after the other so fast, they're never fully formed. And the colors are just weak, washed out, like pastel. For when you go slower, like you walk instead of look through the window of a car, you have more time. So the image on the back of your eye forms more fully. More detail is discernible, and the colors are richer. But nothing matches when you stand absolutely still, with your eyes wide open, and allow the image to fully form. Only then does all the detail become clear, and all the colors become fully formed. Which is why, when you're still, that grass is a deeper green than you've ever seen before. Different shades of green. Everything looks so beautiful as you see more deeply into things because you stopped and gone still. I say that simile because that's a beautiful simile for meditation. In our lives we go so fast. We do live life like watching through the window of a speeding car, which is our life. And we think we know all that is around us and inside of us even, but we're really going too fast. We're missing too much detail. So when you go slow, you actually see more, because whether it's your eyes or your ears or other senses, it has far more time for images to form and for your mind to investigate them. But the amazing thing is, it's not only you see more detail, but what you see becomes more beautiful, more deep, I'm not sure if you've had this experience at this retreat center, but the first retreat which I did, which was in 1970, was in a local university in Cambridge. We hired a few boarding houses during the vacation and did our retreat for nine days. When I signed up, I signed up with great trepidation. I was not scared of sitting on the long hours. I was not scared with the silence. What really worried me was the food. Now, in, 19, well, in 1970, you know, you know that the British were not really well known, especially the English, not really well known for their culinary expertise. The usual meal was meat and two veg, and everything was boiled so much, it doesn't matter what the vegetable was, it always tasted the same. In fact, there was no taste there at all. It was disgusting food. And of all the cooks in the whole country... The very worst, the bottom of the pile, the ones which could not get a job elsewhere, would be employed cooking for poor students like me. So when I knew I was going to have nine days of stodge, stodge, stodge with everything boiled out, 
I really thought I should take some sandwiches. But to my surprise, the food was delicious. Surprisingly so. And I thought that I was just lucky. My good karma had a good cook for a change. But I realized it wasn't the cook at all. It was my mindfulness. I was becoming still and peaceful. So much so that the tiny piece of flavor remaining after all that boiling, I could actually pick up. I could actually be mindful of it. And I think you'll find, if you're getting good meditation on this retreat, those of you who are on self-retreat or other retreats here, you'll find the more peaceful you get, the more delicious the food. It's true. So much so that as the mindfulness gets very deep and you see so much more and it gets even more beautiful, very strange things happen. I like telling this story, that on a retreat once, you know, of course, I, had to, I was having some very deep meditation, really peaceful and so much joy coming up. Everything looked beautiful. And I just had to go to the toilet. And after going to the toilet, I just, by chance, looked into the bowl. And I've never seen such a beautiful turd in my life. <laughs> my goodness, the different shades of brown. I mean, it's not just one shade of brown. They've got no, 10, 15, 20 different sides of brown. And just the way the whole thing is formed, these incredible balls, all put together just like a genius, like some Michelangelo. And just the way the water on the outside glistened under the lights like diamonds. It was actually incredibly beautiful. And you know, it was such a hard thing to push that button and thrush it away. <laughs> it really took a lot of letting go. <laughs> but you know, that was true. It actually looked so beautiful. So you know you're getting someone in your meditation when you look in the bowl and think, wow, look at that. And you call the person in the next cubicle over, hey, come and have a look at this. <laughs> This is Hahayana again. But the important thing was, it was just saying the importance of joy, what in Pali we call piti sukha, coming up in your meditation. Things get beautiful, simply because you're going slower and you're becoming still. And that becomes our path in meditation. For a long time now, you know, because I teach Buddhism all over the place, that for a long time now I've objected to people using concentration as the term for samadhi, for meditation. Please don't use that term. That is very inaccurate, wrong, misleading and harmful. Because you're all Westerners. I remember as a kid at school, concentration was something your teacher forced you to do. Come on, concentrate! And from that time it had very unpleasant connotations. And even, you know, the very word concentration. This is a retreat center. Is this a concentration camp in Gaia House? <laughs> Have you got barbed wire on the fences and guard posts and, and guards making sure you get up in the morning? Is there a dungeon where they take you if you break the rules downstairs, under the ground, somewhere where they haven't told you yet? <laughs> that whole idea of concentration and concentration camp is just purgative. And it's also totally inaccurate. For the last four or five years, I have been using the word stillness for the word samadhi, for the goal of meditation. And I use that word 
because not only does it more accurately describe what happens when the meditation starts to be successful, but it also makes it much clearer how to meditate. And only recently, during the three-month retreat over in Perth, which we just completed, one of the retreatants uh, from China lives in the United States. She came up to me very excited because she's a very, very devout Buddhist and been studying the Chinese scriptures, the Agamas, which are the equivalent to the Paripitaka, almost exactly the same. It's the original translation which went to China from the Sanskrit, oh, I don't know, maybe 1800 years ago. And she was very excited. She said, yes, 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 yes. Because the Chinese characters for samadhi, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path, is never concentration, nowhere near it. So the two terms, the two characters are sure and gun. I probably pronounced that badly, but most of you don't know Chinese, so I'm safe. Sure does actually mean still. And gun means looking over, like being mindful. And that, those early Chinese masters understood what samadhi meant. It's still and aware. That is the meaning of meditation. And if you understand that, you get a much better idea of what you're supposed to be doing when you meditate. I'm going to now use a glass of water as my visual aid. Because this is a very good simile of what to do when you meditate, how to meditate and how not to meditate. I'm now, I actually will need your help on this. You can sit where you are, you don't need to move. But I want you to tell me, I'm going to hold this glass of water perfectly still. And I want you to tell me when this water has reached the state of stillness. I'd better move my hand down. Has it stopped moving yet? Okay, so I better concentrate and focus. Is it still yet? Okay, look, I better really get my act together and focus. Full effort. Any luck yet? You know, this is how most people meditate, trying to hold their minds still, and they just get totally tired, frustrated, and sometimes give up, because it can't be done. How can you get this glass of water to be perfectly still? Very simple. You put it down. Detach. Let go. And then you find, after a few seconds, as long as it's not an earthquake. No, there's no earthquake this evening. Now, Andy, is that water still yet? Perfectly still. Exactly. If you don't believe me, you can go back to your room and try it yourself. But it actually works. By letting things go, by leaving them alone, by putting them down, by disengaging, by stopping controlling, by taking your hands off the wheel and feet off the pedals, by just stopping, then the mind becomes still. All by itself. And that becomes samadhi. And just like the simile, only when the lake is perfectly still, when there's not even a ripple on the surface, only then is it glassy smooth, and only then can you see the perfect reflection of the stars 
and the moon above. Only then does it reflect reality and truth. So with a still mind, a peaceful mind, then you can see the truth. When you are walking up the hillside, when you're totally still and nothing moves, only then can you see deeply into what's going on around and associated joy. So that becomes you know, what this meditation is all about. It's all about learning how to let go. Ajahn Chah often used to say, we meditate not to get things or to attain things. As that great master and alcoholic Chogyam Trumpa used to say, <laughs> he was an alcoholic. He died of alcohol poison. But he was, did said some very smart things. That was a Vajrayana. He started off at Sami Ling, just in the north of England, but then moved to the United States and started the Naropa Institute. But one thing which uh, he once coined this term, spiritual materialism. Just like we have materialism in the West, you know, trying to sort of get the biggest house, the best car, the most money, whatever else you think you want. Some of you have given up on that because you're never going to make it in the world. So you try and make it in spirituality and have spiritual materialism. And just see who's the most enlightened, who's done the most retreats, who knows the, have the most insight, who can get the deepest meditation, who can lift off the floor the fastest. Whatever it is, that spiritual materialism is exactly the same thing as our materialism. It's totally against the Dhamma. It just stuffs you up and creates a lot of problems. So remember, you're on retreats, you're practicing Buddhism, not to get attainment so you can show them off to your friends. Hey, what did you get after the retreat? I got, I got um, second jhana. Second jhana, I got that weeks ago. That's nothing. I want third now. Third. No, that's really hopeless. It reminds me of a story. Because when you give talks, it's good to entertain people as well. There was just over in London, these four women having a coffee in the afternoon. They were quite well off and they're very proud of their sons. They're all Catholics. And the first woman said... Oh, I'm so proud because yesterday I went to the ordination of my son. He is now a Catholic priest. And you know, when people come in, especially women come into the church, they bow their heads and they call him the Reverend. He gets so much respect. I'm really sort of pleased with him. And the second woman just put down her cup of coffee and sniffed. Just a priest, that's nothing. My son ordained quite a few years ago. He's now a bishop. In his church, when a woman comes into the room, they fall down on one knee and they call him your grace and they kiss his ring. And the third woman said, only a bishop. My son is a cardinal. They go down on two knees and they call him your eminence. They look up to him. He's a big shot. You know, he's a cardinal now. And the fourth woman just carried on having, drinking our cup of coffee. And they were all wondering what how she could could match their three sons. And when she finished her coffee, she said, my son, my son never joined the clergy. He's not interested in that. He's six foot eight, blonde, blue-eyed, and he plays centre-forward for Manchester United, and he's filthy rich. When he comes into the room, all the women fall on the floor and say, my God, my God, my God. <laughs> which is an example of spiritual materialism. 
<laughs> Anyhow, if you haven't heard that old joke before, you get some more old jokes coming. <laughs> so remember, that <laughs> this Buddhism is to try and let go of all that attainment business and comparing yourselves with others. It's letting go, being more empty rather than more full. So if you understand that, you're getting some more understanding of where we're going. And actually how that really works, the more you let go, the more free you are. Look, that I mentioned this a few days ago. One of the reasons why I turned to Buddhism as a young man, maybe only 16 or 17, when I went through school, I, you know, through scholarships, I came from a poor family, and through scholarships I got to a very good school in London, and it was you know, through direct grant. And uh, that school had a chaplain. And about the age of 15 or 16, I forget when, I was really interested. And so I went up to the chaplain and just asked him, I said, look, can you please explain you know, this idea of a God? You know, what actually is it? Because I just couldn't get my head around it. And he sort of replied, that, you know, in Christianity, his understanding that God is the ineffable you know, beyond words, it's transcendent, you know, it's it's a ground of being, it's just the beginning and end of all things, you know, it's, and he went on like that, and it was just to me, it was gobbledygook, you know, what do you mean the ground of all being? I know the ground, you know, which gets your feet dirty when you stand on it, you know, and ineffable, what does that mean? You know, I think it was, um, oh, I forget who it was, but ineffable means it can't be effed, and I don't actually know what it means. What is to F something? But whatever it is to F something, God is, can't be done because he's ineffable. And <laughs> so the whole thing was actually meaningless nonsense if I really sort of uh, contemplated it. And that's why I just gave up that because not one person gave me a solid description which made sense of this idea of God. So then I became a Buddhist. And I remember going to see a Buddhist monk and asked him, Nirvana, what actually is it? Can you please you know, tell me? Because I, was, you know, I wasn't trying to sort of um, uh, catch a person out or be cheeky. I just really wanted to know. And he said, Nirvana, it's ineffable. It's <laughs> the ground of all being. It's transcendent. It's beyond words. <laughs> and I said, I've heard that before somewhere. <laughs> Do you know what Nirvana is? You know, so many Buddhists, they haven't got a clue what nirvana is, but they're going for it. <laughs> it's absolute stupidity. It's like getting on a bus not knowing where the destination is. When you get there, you might be very disappointed. <laughs> so, it's very beautiful, actually, to, to get some real understanding of what these terms truly mean. And so, now I'm going to tell you, in very simple words, what nirvana is. You know, I was a theoretical physicist, and there's a great quote from Werner Heisenberg. You may not know exactly what he did in quantum physics, but you all probably have heard of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And quantum physics is supposed to be one of the most abstruse, difficult, complex um, parts of mathematical physics. But this great Werner Heisenberg said, if you really understand quantum physics, if you really know what you're talking about, you will be able to explain it to the barmaid at the pub and she'll be able to understand. And there was a wonderful quote from a great scientist. If you really understand what you're talking about, 
you can explain it to a kid and they will understand. So, what is Nirvana? The best explanation which I've ever had is the story of, and this builds into spiritual materialism, it's the five children playing the wishing game. And it goes like this. The wishing game, every child has one wish, and the child who comes up with the best wish wins the wishing game. It's as simple as that. So the first child, he said, what's your wish? And he thinks for a few seconds and said, I wish for a new Playboy. Because he loves playing video games. Very good. The second child had longer to think. So he said, well, if I just get a new Playboy, a new one's going to come out no, a year or two later, and this is, uh, I've wasted my opportunity. So I'm going to wish for a video game store. When I own the video game store, I can have whatever Playboys, whatever sort of I need from video games. So that's clearly a more superior wish. If ever you're in a competition like that, always make sure you never go first and always go last. Just like that story of the, uh, the rabbi, the priest, and the Buddhist monk. You know we do a lot of interfaith work because that's part of our social responsibility, what we call like engaged Buddhism. There's too much conflict caused by religions and so you know, we do actually get to know each other and work with each other. And there's rabbi, Buddhist monk and priest. You know, they started discussing their religions and they realized they have to become friends before you can really get to the heart of the differences and what we hold in common. And so they would go out to dinner together and breakfast and lunch and, and one thing led to another and just to be able to get sort of some trust and some friendship they just started playing cards together. One thing next to, led to another and they started gambling, having a little gambling den and that was actually illegal. They got busted by the police and had to go to, ju- had to, go to court. So there was the trial before the judge and the first up there to being being questioned, you know, was the, was the Christian priest. And the judge said, look, let's cut to the chase. I'm not going to waste time. You're all holy men. I expect you to tell the truth. Priest, were you gambling? And very quickly, he looked up to the heavens, said, God forgive me. No, <laughs> he said. Okay, get down. Because he lied. And then it was the job of the rabbi. Rabbi, were you lying? And he, he used the old trick, which we used to use at school. He crossed his fingers behind his back and said, no, I wasn't gambling. And the last was a Buddhist monk. And the judge says, you Buddhist monks are honest. You keep your precepts. You won't tell a lie. Were you gambling? And the monk said, with whom? <laughs> <laughs> so always be last. Okay, so, yes, I'll ask for the video game store. Very good. So the third kid, again, had more time to think and obviously get a better wish. The third kid was very smart. And he said, if I had a wish, I would wish for 100 billion pounds. Because with 100 billion pounds... I can buy whatever I want. And also, that will never run out for a whole lifetime. So, first of all, I'll buy my video store. But then, you know, 
I, my mother never lets me play those video games. She said I should do my homework first. So after the video store, then I will buy my own school. If I own the joint, I won't have to go there and I can still give myself top marks. And after I graduate from my own school, then I'll buy my own university and give myself honours first-class degree. You know you can own your own university these days. And look, whatever I want, whenever I want it, with $100 billion, $100 billion, $100 billion pounds, I can buy whatever I want whenever I want it. Beat that. So the third kid had a $100 billion wish. And don't think $200 billion is, is better, because $100 billion, $200 billion is actually the same. Actually, Arnold Schwarzenegger said that. He said, as, uh, when he was governor of California, he said that, you know, money doesn't mean anything to me. It feels just the same, you know, now that I've got uh, five, no, now that I've got $100 million instead of 90 so war doesn't really matter at all. So the $100 billion wish, how can you beat the $100 billion wish? The fourth girl, she was a genius. She thought and said, I can beat the $100 billion wish. She said, if I had a wish, I'd wish for three wishes. That's a wish. For my first wish, I'll have the video game store. For my second wish, I'll have $100 billion pounds. And for my third wish, I'll have three more wishes. That way I can go on forever. Beat that. So that was clearly superior than the hundred billion pound wish. The infinity of wishes. Granted. How can you beat that? The fourth child beat that wish. The fourth child said, If I had a wish... I'm letting you think for a little bit. If I had a wish, I wish I was so content I never needed any more wishes ever again. And that clearly won the wishing game. So content you don't need any more wishes. That's Nibbana. Contentment, the end of craving. It's called freedom from wanting. Freedom from craving. Freedom from desire. The fourth wish, the infinity of wishes, is the freedom of desire. The two different freedoms in our world. The freedom of desire is getting whatever you want whenever you want it. The freedom from desire is not wanting anything. Being content, being happy. That is Nibbana. You know, that made sense to me when I first heard that. That's a much better way instead of the ground of all being and other gobbledygook nonsense. So remember, if someone really knows what they're talking about, they'll be able to explain it to you and you'll be able to understand. So that's one of the last things I not like about Buddhism. It's simple, straightforward, understandable. It makes sense. So that way you can be a nice, peaceful, happy person so you don't need much in the world. That means you can be so content and so happy. So instead of spiritual materialism, when we want things, it goes in the opposite directions. We let go to see how little we need, how little we have. We let go of the cup until it becomes perfectly still and peaceful. Can you be still? 
One of the ways of being still is learning how to be content. As I say, contentment, being happy with what you've got. So all of you on a self-retreat, have you got what you want yet? Are you still trying to get more peaceful? If you're trying to get more peaceful, more deep, more insights, you're stuffing up again. Shut up. Tell your brain and your mind, oh, this is good enough. Who do I think I am? The Buddha or some Bodhisattva? No, just shut up and let go and be stupid. What's wrong with being stupid? It's not against any precepts. In other words, be happy to be who you are. To understand this, another little story, before I'm going to open up for some questions and answers and comments and maybe go on other areas. Part of the thing which I have to do as a monk, looking after our community over in Western Australia and other places, and you know, there's many invitations to go and teach in prisons, and I've been teaching in prisons a long time. But, you know, becoming more sort of uh, active in other areas that I gave the prison visiting over to another monk. He went to the new prison. He visited for a number of weeks and the prisoners asked him to stay a bit longer after this meditation session. They would just want to get to know him and have a cup of tea and just get friends with their teacher. So he, he agreed. He stayed a bit longer. And one of the things they asked him is, you know, what's it actually like being a monk in a monastery in Australia? Now, what do you actually do? What's your schedule? So he gave them the, the schedule in the monastery in which I live in, in Perth. He said, we get up at four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning, said the prisoners. Even murderers don't have to get up that time. What bad karma did you do to have to get up at four o'clock? And at that, the monk said, well, actually, and he was being accurate, Actually, getting up at four o'clock in the morning is optional. You can always get up earlier if you want to, but not later. <laughs> it's optional. <laughs> and then what do you do, said the prisoners? Can you catch the late night movie? He said, no, there's no TVs in a monastery. We meditate. Oh, fair enough. And then you have a breakfast. In my monastery, we have a mug and we have some cereal in it. You can have whatever cereal, but that's it. Just a mug of cereal. He said, wow, you know, in prisons... They can have bacon and eggs and toast and pancakes and, and fruit. You name it, you can have it. He said, not in monastery. He said, that's terrible. So what do you do after breakfast? And actually, we work hard. You know, we do a lot of laboring as monks. And if you've been to Amawati or Chitters in the same type of tradition, we can work really, really hard. And they said, you know, in Western prisons, like in England, you never get the prisons working that hard. Now we have broken rocks. They used to do that on Dartmoor, just up the road here, but I don't think they do that anymore. So what time do you have your, your lunch? We have the lunch just before 12. But in our tradition, we eat in all in one bowl. You may have seen that. Everything goes in one bowl. Many, many times I've had my ice cream on top of the curry. Chocolate ice cream on green curry. I've had many times... Custard on my spaghetti. <laughs> Have you ever had custard on spaghetti? How do you know what it tastes like? You know, you don't know yet, do you? All sort of grimacing, saying that must be terrible. Well, actually, it is terrible. <laughs> I tried it. Don't, don't try it. 
And they say, well, look, even if you're in solitary confinement, they give you a tray with compartments, and they're not like these Buddhist monks. So what do you do after lunch? Now, can you play sport? So we don't play sport as monks in monasteries or nuns. Although one day I did actually think of starting a Buddhist soccer team. You know, it's been good now. Like, you can have Gaia House versus Sharpham House up the road. You know, all the monasteries could have a football team. and may have played the Catholic Church up the road as well, you know, just for sake of harmony. But, you know, it was a great idea, but then I thought, what would happen if you started a Buddhist soccer team? Because it would have to run on Buddhist principles. If the other team wanted the ball, out of compassion, you'd give it to them. Come on, <laughs> it's yours. If they couldn't score, you know, you'd score an own goal for them, you know, to make them happy, you know, because we're selfless, letting go, may all other beings be happy and well, meta. So you can see why we don't have Buddhist soccer teams. <laughs> so no, we just meditate in the afternoon. I said, oh God, don't you ever get tired of meditation? And the monk was quite honest, he said, yes, yeah, sometimes. Do you get tired of meditation? Come on, be honest, sometimes you do. He said, well, what time do you have your dinner? I think you all know that monks and nuns of our tradition, we don't have dinner. I say, wow, you know, we have a big dinner in prison. So what do you do after sort of, you know, you have a cup of tea, what do you do then? Can you play cards or, you know, listen to some music? I say, no, we can't do that either, it's all meditating. Oh boy, that's a bit much. What time do you go to bed? Go to bed? And I'm honest, we don't have beds, we sleep on the floor. You sleep on the floor, you don't even have beds. Coming up here, this is luxury. I've got a bed here, you know, with a mattress. Wow, that's so nice. Thank you for letting me have a mattress. Much better than my monastery. So, it was such an austere monastery compared to a prison in the West that one of the prisoners who liked this monk forgot where he was. And just out of compassion, but little wisdom, he said to this monk, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with me instead? <laughs> he was invited to stay in a monastery because actually it was far more comfortable than a Buddhist monastery. That's why if ever I go to jail, it would be luxury. I won't be afraid. It would be much more comfortable. I have three meals a day, a mattress to sleep in, and all sorts of other things. <laughs> no. Why is it that in a mon my, my monastery at the moment, it's a really long waiting list of people trying to get in? And in prisons, it's a long waiting list of people trying to get out. What's the difference? What's the difference between prison and freedom? And a prison is any place you don't want to be. It doesn't matter if it's austere or comfortable. If you don't want to be there, it's a prison. And freedom is any place you want to be. Do you want to be here right now? Or do you want to go home? If you want to be here, you're free. If you want to be somewhere else, you're in prison. When you're meditating, and you're having a bad state of mind, or it's not as good as you expect, do you want to be here? Or do you want to be somewhere else, deeper, in jhana, enlightened, or whatever? You've just made another prison for yourself. If you have a relationship, you don't want to be there, the relationship is like a prison. A job you hate, another prison. We create so many prisons in our life. Places, situations, in bodies where we don't want to be. And it's so easy to be free. You don't have to change your partner. 
You don't have to walk out of this room. You don't have to heal your body. You don't have to get rid of the hindrances obsessing your mind. Want to be here. Want to be stupid. Want to be sick. Want to be bored. And then you are free. Any place you want to be is freedom. Why? Absence of desires. No wanting. This is good enough. Putting down the cup. That is what freedom is. And if you do that, you find the mind gets really, really still. You want something, you're moving. You put it down, it becomes still. All by itself. It's a great thing in meditation. You don't have to do anything. All doing stops the stillness. How can you make your mind still? You've got to get out of the way and the mind becomes still all by itself. So, what actually happens in meditation? Close your eyes. You're still. Or, as I did when I went to Throssel Hole as a student many, many years ago, you had your eyes open, just watching the wall. You know, if you watch the wall with your eyes open, it disappears. When that happened, I thought it was really weird. What's going on? Am I going crazy? But it's just science. Your brain is only wired to see things which change. The sound, if it doesn't change, it disappears. So if it doesn't change, in other words, if it's constant, it soon disappears. If you close your eyes, the first thing you see is blackness. Because the blackness doesn't change, it vanishes. Sounds, as long as it's a constant sound, it vanishes. Tastes, constant, vanishes, smells. As long as no one farts because they ate too many beans this morning, it's constant. That's actually why they have lots of incense in Buddhist temples, just to mask those smells because there's too many vegetarians. (laughs) Do you know also why people don't wear shoes in Buddhist temples? Do you know why? It's because when the monk says a bad joke, you haven't got something to throw at them because that's the situation. Now they, they throw the shoes at George Bush, they throw it at the Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, as well. So that's a custom when you don't have any shoes in here, I'm safe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that as you become still, the senses turn off and disappear. You sit perfectly still, and after a while you can't feel your body, there's nothing moving, except... What still moves, even though he's sitting still? Your breath still moves. Which is why when you start to let go, you put your cup down. After a short time, you become aware of your breathing. It's natural, you don't have to look for it. The reason is because that's moving while everything else is still. Everything else has disappeared, and only what's moving is what's registered in the brain. And as you're just with your breath, not controlling it, it soon settles down because the more still you are, the less oxygen you need, which means the breath gets softer and smoother. Until it gets the time so soft, so smooth, you can't tell the difference between the in-breath and the out-breath. And it disappears. No more breath. With that, the five senses vanish. It's one of the jobs of meditation. The stillness leads to vanishing. Hopefully you've experienced those times when you can't feel the body. It's, it's gone, it's vanished. So comfortable, it's called Kaya Pasadi in Pali. The tranquility of the body vanishes. 
The next thing which happens with most people, they see this beautiful light in the mind. That is how we perceive the sixth sense, the jitter, the mind. So we're actually going deep into stillness. If that jitter, that light keeps moving, changing, again it's not still enough, it will stay, it will not be able to develop, it has to vanish through stillness, like anything else. If it's totally still or doesn't change, it goes. And that's where we get the jhanas. All of these are states of vanishing. Stillness leading to something disappearing. Seeing what's underneath and that disappears. All the way through the jhanas and arupas into total cessation. Stillness. Vanishing. Seeing what's underneath. Seeing the core of these things. That is a path of meditation. And Ajahn Chah's best simile, one which I heard in his first year. The first year I was with him, but didn't understand. But you know what happens when I argue about these teachings. Sometimes people argue with them, they disagree with them, I don't care, because it gets in your brain. So when you hear it, it will stay. And later on, like me, I understood what Ajahn Chah was meaning. He said his monastery, and it's the same with Gaia House, is a mango orchard. And those trees were planted by the Buddha. And those trees are full of ripe, juicy mangoes. On every branch and twig are juicy, sweet mangoes. And you, meditators, do not need to climb the tree to get a mango. You don't need to get a stick and throw it up to make the mango fall. And nor do you need to shake the tree. Please don't shake the tree to get a mango to fall. All you need to do, hold out your hand and a mango will fall. Thank you. That is the way of meditation. Please don't shake the Bodhi tree. Don't climb up it and throw sticks at it. Just open up your mind and heart. Be still and the fruits of insight, enlightenment will fall. That was Ajahn Chah's great simile. Brilliant. Thank you for listening. Okay, now some questions. Questions, comments and complaints. Who's going to ask the first question? Yes, go on. It can be about something else as well. Go on. Okay, it's when the Buddha will be talking to to monks. He'd obviously say, "Look, be careful not of women. Be careful of lust." So the Buddha quite freely ordained women as bhikkhunis. And if you look totally at what the Buddha was saying, never focus on one or two passages, but see the whole lot. Uh, I was fortunate to see one of the great German monks, Venerable Jana Ponika, before he passed away, uh, visiting Sri Lanka. And just talking to him, he said something which any of you who study the Buddhist scriptures, please keep this in mind. 
He said, never interpret the whole of the teachings of the Buddha on the basis of one or two obscure passages. In fact, interpret the one or two obscure passages in light of the vast amount of clear Buddhist teachings. Suttanipata is verse. And verse is meant to inspire, to evoke emotions. It's not to actually to be precise. In the same way, such as like William Wordsworth, I wandered lonely as a cloud. That's rubbish. You can't be a cloud. That guy was crazy. But no, it's not meant to be specific and precise. What that's meant to do is to evoke some feelings. And that is a job of verse. And much of the things which confuse people about Buddhism is the verses which are supposed to inspire, not to give you precise instructions of the nature of the world, Nibbana, or the practice. So I remember got that from Professor A.K. Warder, where I learnt my Pali from. The verses, just like the songs, you know, of our culture, the poetry. The poetry is never to be specific. You don't write sort of a manual on quantum physics in, in verse. You know, you do it in prose, it's precise. But the verse is there for talking about love or hatred or sort of suffering, depression. I woke up this morning, my baby ran away with my best friend. You remember the old blues songs? <laughs> that is the epitaph for the blues singer. He didn't wake up this morning. <laughs> if you know blues, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So that's from the Suttampata. There is actually this beautiful, compassionate teachings of the Buddha. And it's not anti-woman, not anti-gay, not anti-anything. Anti-lust, anti-anger, anti-discrimination, yes. We all know that sort of the Buddha actually railed against even the caste system. He said that just if you are a really high person, it doesn't matter where you were born, who your family was, whether you were a boy or a girl, or gay or whatever, it's just what you do makes you a, a good person, which gives you respect. You know, you're respected by your acts, not your gender or your family or your caste or class. And that's, that's real Buddhism. And we all know there's no such thing as a girl or a boy. Look, you see babies, I can't tell it's a girl or a boy. In the old days, they used to dress the boys in blue and the girls in pink. But, you know, we sort of go against conventions these days. And so, I don't know. And when you were growing up, you're the same. Boys and girls is hardly any difference. You get to, was it, 12, 13 or 14, and then we sort of branch apart and we accentuate those differences. And then when you get to sort of 40 or 50, past menopause, if you didn't sort of try and use all those creams and ointments and stuff, we'd all come together again. We'd look the same. <laughs> I you know, see this in Asia, in these villages over there, and just the old men and the old women look indistinguishable. And I think that's actually really beautiful. You know, we're all together when we're young. We separate just for, you know, just for having children and for procreating. And then afterwards, when that's all over, we come together again. There's no difference. 
No, physically. You know, okay, you're shapely, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s, you know, but once your breasts start to sag and everything sort of starts getting loose, you look the same. That's the old story of that woman who's, oh, her husband had died. They'd been married for 50 years. And after her husband died, you know, she just didn't want to live without him, so she wanted to commit suicide. She managed to find, you know, he was in the army, he got his service revolver. But before she shot herself, she wanted to make sure she was going to make no mistakes. So she rang up a friend and asked her, where is your heart situated? And the doctor said, it's just below your breast. So she shot herself in the knee. (laughs) (laughs) You wait till you're 60, 70. (laughs) Oh, come on, it's okay to have a laugh. You know, when I give these talks, the Dharma people don't remember. The jokes they go home and tell them. <laughs> Does that answer your question, sort of? Okay, amazing. <laughs> okay, let's have another question or comment. I know that Andy wants. Okay, at the back, yeah? Okay, yeah, this is, I know, Andy wanted me to talk about this. And I met another person from Gaia House a couple of days ago. I think it was, no, actually, last night in, um, I gave a talk at Imperial College. And he was asking me, should Gaia House come out and really support this? Or should they just be apolitical and just not say anything? No, if you've got an idea of you, please, you know, let people know. Because even in the time of the Buddha, it was you, the lay people, kept the monks honest. Now you complained, and that's where we got all the rules from. But actually, my own personal decision, this idea of the tradition, look, some people misrepresent the tradition, and they say they know the tradition, and sometimes I really argue with them. I did keep the tradition. I did not go against the tradition. There is no Thai law prohibiting the ordination of bhikkhunis. The Thai law in 1928 was actually to stop a one Sangha ordination where the head of the Sangha in Thailand at the time quite correctly said that according to the Vinaya, that's our legal rules, to ordain a bhikkhuni you need another bhikkhuni, a bhikkhuni Sangha and then afterwards the bhikkhu Sangha. Bhikkhunis are the female monks, bhikkhus are the male monks. He said you can't do that. You have to need bhikkhunis. And that's, of course, what we did in Perth. That's what there was done in Spirit Rock in California last Monday. And that's what was done in Sri Lanka. That's the way we have bhikkhunis. Totally according to the Vinaya, the tradition. Legal, acceptable. For me, it was the conference in Hamburg. Uh, it was sponsored by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Was it now? About three or four years ago now. There's many of the scholars presented papers, I read those papers, and the legal argument was won in Hamburg. 
as far as the vineyard, which we have to keep. We do keep the tradition. I'm a very traditional monk. Even actually the jokes. Ajahn Chah used to tell funny stories. And even Ajahn Chah used to use gross words. He spoke in the local language. You know I've used many shit stories. Ajahn Chah used worse words than that. Any people in Thai, this is maybe go on the internet, he always used to say key. Key means shit in Thai. Even kima means dog shit. I use that term so often. But, so I'm actually following the tradition. <laughs> I am. And even the Buddha said many times, he said, monks, you should teach the Dharma in the local language. Because it engages you. Look, don't be prudes. If you want to be prude, go to the Anglican church where the vicars are just you know, say you know, all polite words and no one actually goes. This is real life, okay? Tell it as it is. As you would speak at home or in the pub, that's how we should speak with you. And it's refreshing when that happens. That's what I liked about Ajahn Chah. You know, you could actually talk with him. It made sense. So... I am very traditional. The legal argument was won in Hamburg. And then it all was left was a political argument. Why not? Now, as for the tradition, the tradition of the Vinaya, and of course, I was well known as one of the experts, if not the expert in our Sangha on the Vinaya. They still regard my knowledge as, as you know, uh, unsurpassable in all the monks in their tradition. And I also learned Pali and translated books in Pali. You can see my name in the, in the Sangyuta and the Majjhima, which was translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. I helped him out on those ones. And so I know my stuff, and I know that vinaya. What the, one of the important parts of the governance of the, the Buddhist Sanghas is that it, it's democratic. And just as an aside, the idea in the West that democracy began in Greece, and that Greece was the origin of democracy, is very wrong. It just shows just the arrogance of the West to think it began in Greece. The evidence is very strong, convincing, that it was actually earlier in India. The Indian form of democracy probably did not start the democracy in Greece. It looks like they both appeared about the same time, but the evidence suggests it got in India first. Because that was the model which the Buddha used. He used that for the constitution, the laws of governments of the Sangha, a real democratic model. And we haven't changed since. The Buddhist Sangha of monks and nuns is the longest continuous democratic institution. With... Uh, the devolvement of authority. Every monastery is autonomous. This is specified by the Vinaya. The monks or the nuns in that monastery, they have full authority to decide how they're going to behave and what they're going to decide. And the monks in some monastery a hundred miles away do not have a right to interfere. It's devolvement of governance. And that was really important because you may all know one of the other famous statements of the Buddha when he was about to pass away. He was asked, who's going to take over once you've passed away? He said, no person, no monk, no nun will take over leadership. The teachings and the rules, the Vinaya, they will be your leader from now on.
And that way he stopped the idea of popes and archbishops and ayatollahs and all that rubbish. So we don't have leaders. We have communities. So I don't know how Gaia House works, but I hope there's no boss person. (laughs) That you follow the real Buddhism and yet you have committees, you talk together. And that's what we do in our monasteries. So, there... I never ordained any bhikkhunis. I am not responsible. My community is. I just happen to be their leader, their front piece, the one up front who everyone throws the rotten tomatoes at. But it's our community. We decided. We talked about it. And not just we decided, okay, let's stir up things and let's do something for Buddhism. It all came about because there were four real women. Not pawns in some sort of political game. Four real people who'd been ten precept nuns for a long time and they said, can we become bhikkhunis? Can we have the the full ordination? So it's a personal thing, not some political game we're playing. And there was no reason why we could say no. The whole sangha said Of course, if that's what you want, and it can be done, we'll do it. So it was because the four women wanted to become bhikkhunis. And there was no legal reason to say no. That's why we did the bhikkhuni ordination. We had the full right to do that. And upsetting other people, it would have been much worse to upset those four women who had a legitimate request And I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I had said no. So in life, there must always be a time when you stand your ground. You know what's right. And if other people, they shout at you, they excommunicate you, they rubbish you, that's their business. But your business, you always have to live with yourself. You can listen to other people's complaints for a lot of the day. But at night time, that's when you only listen to yourself. And if you can't respect yourself and your decisions, then you'll never sleep well at night. And you never die well either. So as far as I'm concerned, I've done nothing wrong. I'm very content with what I did and what my Sangha did and what our community did. And I think you all know it's the right thing to do. And actually all those monks who objected, they know it's the right thing to do too. You take them aside and they say, yeah, it's a great thing, well done. I wish we could do it. They... It's the politics. The politics of any situation, they just put us in situations, oh, we can't do this because someone will say that or someone will do that. But, you know, we should put aside politics and just do what we know is right. Did I do the right thing? You know, I don't give a damn what you think. I know I did the right thing and that's it. That makes sense? Come back. Yeah, there many respected nuns have left uh, the communities in England, and again it was because of the reaction that why can't we be become bhikkhunis as well? At the same time, of course, there was uh, not a loosening of the relationship, but a hardening of the relationship, which was like a very bad reaction. But only a few few monks were responsible for that. 
So please don't uh, blame the whole monastic community. Now hopefully I was at Amawati a few days ago trying to make bridges of friendship again. So look, you know, these are my friends. And I was with Ajahn Amar and Ajahn Melinda, I don't mind saying names. And look, these are my friends. I've known these for over 30 years. And just whatever they do, that friendship is going to be there till I die. And just any other monk, you know, I will always be their friend. Also, they will be my friend. They may not, they may not think of me as a friend, but as far as I'm concerned, they will always be my friend. I will never allow anger, upset, from what people do. You all know that simile of the two bad bricks in the wall in my book. Do you know that simile? You don't? Oh, come on. This is brilliant. The first story in the book, Open the Door of Your Heart, which is I sold how many sold hundreds of thousands of copies. When I started building my monastery in Australia, you know, we really were poor. We had not enough money to buy land. So we had to borrow from here, borrow from there, and it was just empty land. There was no buildings. So we had to build you know, a place to stay. So when we did get some money, we couldn't afford a builder. So you know, I was a theoretical physics, physicist, okay? I was in my head. But I had to learn how to build, how to mix concrete, lay bricks, put a roof up, uh, pl- plumbing, electric, electricity, everything. So I actually built most of the monastery in which I live. And when it came to laying bricks, because in Australia you can't use wood because there's too many termites and bushfires, so everything has to be done out of bricks. It looked very easy. You just put a brick, no, mortar down, a brick on top, tap it, and it's level, and go on to the next one. But it's never level. So there's one corner which is always high. So you tap it down, and another corner comes up. And then you tap that second corner. Are you a bricklayer? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And the, you tap the second corner and it goes out of line. You have to tap it you know, in line again and the first corner's high again. It just takes so long. Just one brick. But because I was a monk not being paid, I had all the time in the world. And I wanted to make it perfect. Because this is a monastery. It's my work. So I took a long time building my first brick wall. And when it was finished, like you do, you stood back to admire your handiwork. And it was only then I noticed there were two bricks which were at an angle. They spoiled the whole wall. I don't know how I missed those and how that happened. So what I did, you now with the trowel, I tried to scrape out the mortar so I could reset the bricks. But it was too hard. And it was so bad, it spoiled the wall so badly, I asked the monk who was with me if we could buy some dynamite and blow up the wall and start again. <laughs> And he said, no, you can't. We can't afford it anyway. And so, you know, when you make a mistake, you can hide it. But this wall, everybody could see it. It was my wall, my mistake, and I felt awful about that. You know, when people went to visit the monastery where I lived, I I would volunteer to show them around. You know, so I could make sure they didn't go past that wall. They could see something else, something else, but not my wall. You know, even, this is true, even I had nightmares about, I wake up in the middle of the night, oh, you stupid monk, you've blown it. Everyone can see. I felt so embarrassed. For three months, I suffered. Every time I went past that wall, my eyes went to the two bad bricks, you stupid monk. 
and I couldn't fix it anymore. It's a mistake, you know, which you make in life. It's done, and that's it, and you have to live with it. And I couldn't live with it. It was awful. And after three months, I was visit- with a visitor, and they saw that wall, and they said it was a beautiful wall. And I couldn't believe them. I said something like, you know, sir, have you left your glasses in the car? Are you blind? Can't you see those two stupid bricks? We spoil the whole wall. And that's when they said, yes, I can see the two bad bricks, but I can also see the 998 good bricks as well. And that's when I realized it was me who was blind. I could only see my two mistakes. Really, I, I, was at, I could never saw any other brick except the two which were wrong. Every time I thought of it, I thought the two mistakes. Every time I looked at it, my eyes went to the two bad bricks. And once that fellow told me, yes, there's other bricks in that wall other than my mistakes, and I could actually see it. It was a nice wall. And of course, I realized that's a lot of the way I lived my life before. Someone did two bad things, and I wanted to destroy the relationship. And I was actually blind to all the other good things in them. Somebody argued with me about the bikunis. That was, that was a bad brick, I agree. But what about the beautiful other bricks they've done in their life? I'm not going to destroy that friendship because of that. And what I've done in my life. Yeah, I've done stupid things in my life. But why is it we only focus on the two or ten or hundred bad things we've done and not on the 9,980,000 good things we've done? That's a simile of the brick wall. Understanding that. You don't get angry at anybody, nor do you get angry at yourself. You're at peace with things. The world is beautiful. All those monks who chased the nuns out, beautiful monks. They did a terrible thing, a disgusting thing. They're still beautiful monks. Okay, so what are we going to do about those really fine women whose chance to pursue what they wanted to do was thwarted? So I, somebody, I sent an email to someone this morning. She said, what are we going to do for bikunis now, full ordination of women in England? So, get your act together, use lay supporters, the bikunis out there, invite them from overseas. Maybe for temporary visits to Gaia House, there's lots who would love to come here, teach retreats. Get them to come to UK, temporarily first of all. Next stage for a range retreat. Then they go back to where they came from. And then once you get to know them, they get to know you. Then you can start a temple, a monastery, whatever you want. You know, that's how the monks started. That's how it's done. In the meantime, in Australia, my Bikuri factory is starting. So by the time you get your act together, we may have some bikunis, you know, who have gone through the conveyor belt and they've got quality control and they can be exported overseas. <laughs> One of the things which I always remember is a Chinese proverb, rather light a candle than complain about darkness. So don't complain about the bikunis or the nuns in England. Light a candle instead. Do something. I just told you what we can do. Too much negativity doesn't get you anywhere. You know, I can understand why there's negativity there because it's really, really unfair and wrong and it shouldn't have happened. But let's do something now. 
And there's goodwill there as well. So let's use that goodwill. Move things forward. Is that okay? Yeah, actually, that it's one of those things, you know, in life, one of the things you feel good about. Because there was that moment, like all these things, they hinge on a one moment. There's one moment when I was in the monastery where I grew up in Wat Pong, and you had that choice. And the choice was just on one decision. If I said that those four women in Perth weren't real nuns, real bikinis, they said, all be forgiven and there'll be no repercussions. But if I said there were real bikunis, then that was it. There'll be problems. And you know the problems which faced. And of course, I just thought for a minute, no way can I hurt those women. No way could I lie. You know, they were bikunis. And I don't care what you do to me. And I felt really good afterwards. You know, I didn't take the easy way, but took the way of what a monk, a nun any of you should do. You have to be true to yourself, no matter what the consequences. Otherwise, you know, the, your life will be a mess. You won't have that strength, which is you know, what we're really here for. It's not just meditating, it's having this strong sense of what's right, what's wrong, and standing up for it. That's actually, I don't know if you know that Professor Richard Gombrich, he's the head of Buddhist studies at Oxford. He did his beautiful, um, beautiful speech in Bangkok about this time last year, where he's, he was really blasting Theravada Buddhist monks and nuns, especially in Asia. He said, look, you've got this incredibly powerful teaching of meditation, of compassion, of wisdom. You should be practicing it and teaching it and look at you like in in Thailand you have the death penalty for instance that is so un-Buddhist what are you monks doing about it you should be standing up there in the pulpits and the sermons and saying government stop killing people that's wrong prostitution in Thailand for goodness sake it's not just prostitution maybe like in England I don't know what it's like over here but it's sexual exploitation of women and minors and no None of the monks are actually saying anything about it. He said, that's disgusting. What sort of moral strength have you got? You know, you haven't exercised your moral leadership, and you can do that. People will listen to you. You can change things, but why don't you? The same in Sri Lanka as well. And he was actually praising the, I think, the former Archbishop of Canterbury some years ago, I think, just for those of you who have a historic memory, after the Falklands War, the Prime Minister of the time, Margaret Thatcher, had a, a memorial service in St. Paul's Cathedral you know, for the victims of that war. But she meant just our side, you know, the British soldiers who died. And the Archbishop of Canterbury went against his remit and said this is for the victims of all sides including the Argentinians who also died in that conflict. And Margaret Thatcher went ballistic at him. He stood his ground. It was a moral thing to do. Well done, Archbishop of Canterbury. Any religious people, you have got a pulpit. Use it for what is obviously a good thing to say. And don't be intimidated by 
the government, the kings, the queens, the sultans, because you do get patronage from them. You do get donations, you get privileges and rank. That's not what you're a monk or a nun for. That's what the Buddha did. He upset people. He said what needed to be said. That's what we should all do. I'm not being political, I'm just trying to be moral and ethical. You know that's actually pushing Buddhism forward in our world. So one of the nice things about having done this is that once you're a heretic, now I'm free to do whatever I want. <laughs> I can do it again, I can say things, I just had to unbribe. You can only be excommunicated once. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> any other comments? Cause look, I was, I was born in this land. I'm born in Acton, in London. So, you know, I went to school and college here. And, you know, I just, I love this country, but I love Buddhism as well. It has so much to offer. But no, not just on the meditation course, you meditate, you know, really get into it. But also to have some engagement with the world and the problems which we are facing have a huge amount to, to offer to the governments of our world. And you know, in my position, because I'm quite well known now, and you, you do get to see political leaders, I mean really big ones, and actually get to understand how they think and the trouble they get to go to. A good example, because you know Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country and I'm really well known there, Every time I go over there, I have breakfast with the president, you know, Mahinda Rajapaksa. He's not just the titular head of state, he's actually the boss. You know, many people say he's the dictator of that country. But you know, the first thing he said, because, you know, when he sees you, you know, he obviously didn't think this would actually go out. He said that he was a failure. He said to me, I'm a failure. Because he actually went into politics to try and stop the war in Sri Lanka between the Tamil Tigers and the government peaceably. He said he just couldn't do it. He was a failure. And so he chose the other option, which was a military option. We all know what happened. But actually getting to know some of these very powerful figures, one of the things they tell me is, look, they're desperate, trying to find some ideas to solve the problems of our modern world. They know it's out of control militarily, economically, financially, whatever. And they're actually appealing, you Buddhists, can you help? We tried the Christian idea, the Muslim idea is not working. Have you got any input for us? Any ideas? Because they're desperately looking for those ideas. And I think there is a lot of good ideas in the Dhamma which could help. I mean really help and get people to live together in peace and harmony. You know, like, being a Buddhist monk, because you're outside the system, you can have some really weird ideas. You know one weird idea I had? You know the voting system. You know, that once you are 18 years of age, you get a vote. And 60, 70, 80 years of age, you still get one vote. That's really unfair. If you're 80 years of age, you know, you're soon going to get out of here. Your decisions, you will never have to pay the price or have the consequences for the decisions you make. If you're 18, you will face the consequences. 
In fact, 18, say the life expectancy is 80. You know, you've got 62 years to face the consequences of your actions. 62 shares, if you like, of the decisions you're going to make. 80 years of age, you're going to be out of here soon. It doesn't really matter, does it? So I was suggesting that 18-year-olds, maybe 18 to 30, you get a full vote. 30 to 45, you get two-thirds. 45 to 60, you know, you get one-third of a vote. And once you're over 70, no vote at all. Because <laughs> whatever you decide, it's not going to affect you. So if you're 18, it's really going to affect you. So you should have a bigger vote, a bigger say. It's rational, isn't it? Logical. Why not? Yeah, go in the back. Go on. The courage of your convictions when I was 18? Probably not, because I never had the training, never had the insight, and also never had the moral maturity. Quite, quite likely, there's other things as well, which uh, mean that you have the more wisdom, the more maturity to, to vote when you're later. But you can see the idea which is there. And many people say that by the time you become like cabinet ministers, you're very old. And you don't, you know, declaring a war, you know, the cabinet ministers never fight on the front. Many of the decisions they make, say with climate change, or their inaction on climate change, they'll be dead by the time the major consequences hit these countries. So you can actually see that there is a fault in that system. There should be some weight to youth because they're, they are going to pay the consequences much more than people of my age. It's an interesting concept. So you throw these things out of left field because that actually makes people see in a different way. Look, actually I went to a, a high-level leadership conference and they mentioned, it was brilliant, this, just how to solve problems. This was you know, with the, the whole cabinet of Australia you know, at the time. There was actually uh, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and I was invited, it was amazing, it was in Hayman Island, a big resort off in the... Uh, the Great Barrier Reef off Queensland. And on one session there, they had all these high-profile people, and they were talking about the upcoming Copenhagen conference. And they said, now look, this is what I want you to discuss. He said, this is a scenario. They say three or four months before Copenhagen, a big ice sheet falls off Greenland, creates a tsunami, which really damages New York, you know, causes huge destruction, which is a possible scenario. And he said, so, we decided to stop climate, uh, to, to, to stop the problem by stopping carbon emissions 100%. And we've done it. Now, I want to find out how that was achieved. Don't start from where we are and think how we're going to get to the goal. Start from imagining the goal and work backwards. How did we get there? And you know that was a totally different argument and so many other solutions came up 
You're just finding a different way to look at things and amazing solutions appeared. So don't think, here we are, how are we going to get over there? Imagine you're over there, how do we get there? Work backwards. And had amazing ideas come up out, out of that thought forum. Unfortunately, the Australian government has got no real influence. We're small. But if such, a, such an idea of solving problems was introduced to other forms in our world. Okay, the Eurozone is now financially stable. How do we get there? How did that happen? We can work backwards. But if we work where we are now, economy is stuffed in Europe because of Greece. What are we going to do? It's just too difficult to find a path. Work backwards. Now this is coming from a Buddhist monk. I'm not an economist. I'm not a religious. I'm not a world leader. But you see, because you know you're a Buddhist, you're a monk. Because you can actually see in different ways. You can let go of all of your thoughts. There's one thing which I told people from the MOD a few years ago. Never allow, never allow your knowledge to stand in the way of truth. It's a great Buddhist saying. Never allow your knowledge, what you know of Buddhism, what you've been taught, what you've read, never allow that to stand in the way of truth. You understand what I mean? And a lot of times, all you know about Buddhism, all you've heard, all you've learned, all you've believed, that obstructs truth. Which is why that you know we find the truth in a very still and empty mind. And we can see things we never expected to see. So that's actually how we can get, why we have Buddhist wisdom. Totally new ways of looking at things. That's why we do have something to offer to the world. Intuitive, new, interesting, but also sometimes great ways of solving the problems. And you'll have to do it. I'm getting too old now. <laughs> so, come on, a few more questions? Interesting stuff. We got into politics now. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Um, I guess sometimes in, the, in settings like in this one also, there's a little bit of an ambivalence towards engagement. Yeah. So um, there needs to be some form of culture to help see that they're not separated from engagement and practice, not separated. Engagement and practice not separated. That was always the case in the time of the Buddha. The Buddha engaged a lot in the world. But there's times when you go and retreat. So it's that balance between the retreat time and engagement time. You know, sometimes we have this idea of the Mahayana, the Bodhisattva, sacrificing themselves for other people, and the Hinayana, just looking after their own enlightenment. Both are totally dysfunctional. I'll give you an example. Often in a marriage in a country like England, one of the partners is the Bodhisattva Mahayana. The other one is a selfish Hinayana. <laughs> one is in it for themselves, and the other one is sacrificing themselves totally for the relationship. Both are totally dysfunctional. 
any of you have been in a relationship and you give, 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 give to your partner, you find you soon get burnt out. Anyone in a relationship, it's me, 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 that's no relationship either. Both are dysfunctional. The right way is whenever I do a marriage service and you, I'm really engaged, you look at the bride, just freshly married, it's always a beautiful occasion because you know, she's in love, the biggest day of her life, so she thinks, or so she's told anyway. And you look at her in the eyes and say, now you're a married woman. From this moment on, you should not think of yourself. You know, she always smiles sweetly and nods, yeah. I won't think of myself now. Now look at the boy, the new husband. Let's say the same thing to him. From now on, you're a married man. You should not think of yourself. You know, he usually has to pause for about two or three seconds before he nods and says yes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's what men are like. <laughs> but then, still looking at him, I say, you should not think of yourself from this moment on. And from this moment on, you must not think of her, your wife. And I look at the wife and say, from this time on, don't think of him. It's called teaching through confusion. <laughs> People haven't got a clue what you're on about, so they're really listening. And the answer to that riddle is, from now on you must not think of yourself, you must not think of your partner, you must only think of us. You know that's actually amazing, because it solves many of the problems of marriage. It's not about me. It's not about sacrificing yourself for him or for her. You don't think of me or the other. You think of us. You're married. It's a partnership. Which means, if there's any problem, whose problem is it? It's not my problem. It's not his or her problem. Whose problem is it? Our problem, yeah. Same as in politics. Whose problem is it? The government's problem? The opposition's problem? No, it's our problem. We're in it together, so don't blame David Cameron. Don't blame Muammar Gaddafi. Don't blame Obama or Bush. It's our problem. And that's where the solution lies. So that's actually how we engage. After a while, there's no difference. Retreating, engaging, it's all about us. It's no sacrifice, no bodhisattva, it's no arahat, it's all about us. Make sense? You're really quiet. Are you in prison? Do you want to go? <laughs> Any other? Go, yeah, go on. Okay. Okay, what was my main angle in teaching in prisons? I've been to many prisons in the world, even over here in UK. I've been into Broadmoor and a few other prisons over here and in Changi Jail in Singapore and, of course, the prisons in Australia, you know. I've been in so many prisons, but you know, I've never seen a criminal yet. I've never seen a murderer, or a rapist, a sex offender, or a thief. I haven't seen any. And I've been in many prisons. 
what I've ever seen is a person who murdered. I've seen a person who's stolen. I've seen a person who's committed a sex offence, but I've never seen a sex offender. When you understand that, just like the simile of the two bad bricks in the wall, you don't just focus on the reason why that person's been put in that jail. They're far bigger than that. And when you don't see them as a sex offender, you see them as a person who's committed a sex offence. They're a person. Then they can see that too. And you find the person in them grows and grows and grows. A sex offender diminishes. When they get out of jail, they never go back again. Just like, this is a fascinating, I told that story once when I gave a keynote at the Singapore Institute of Mental Health, which was the one-stop campus for all mental illness in that city-state, getting people from China and other surrounding areas because it's state-of-the-art treatment. So that's one of the ways of making money, getting the economy by having a mental health hub in that city-state. So I gave a keynote there at the, I think, the 50th anniversary or whatever. And I mentioned that story about never seeing a criminal, only seeing a person who's committed a crime. And one of the heads of department was so impressed. He said, I'm a Christian, you're a Buddhist, but I want you to come and bless my ward. And so when I was walking with him, I said, you know, what ward is it? He said, it's a schizophrenia ward. And I asked him this question, I said, how do you treat schizophrenia? And he said this wonderful statement I'll never forget. He said, I don't treat schizophrenia. I treat the other part of the patient. And at that time, I raised my arms and said, Sadhu, 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 you've got it, you've understood. If you treat the schizophrenia, you're saying you are a schizophrenic. You'll find the schizophrenia will grow. You treat the other part of the patient. You're not a schizophrenic. You're a person who exhibits occasions, symptoms of schizophrenia. But you are not a schizophrenic. You're a person who has episodes of schizophrenia. Just that change of perception changes the outcomes. And of course I asked him, how's it working? He said, brilliantly. Far, far, far better than any other treatments. It is state-of-the-art. If you have a friend, a brother, a sister, or whatever, never call them a schizophrenic. It's called stigmatization. And you'll find they become schizophrenic even more. Look at the other part of them. The other part of them will grow. I've got a monk in my monastery who was called a schizophrenic. Clinically, and he still has to go to the hospital every month to get checked up, make sure he's okay. He's a brilliant guy. I just I said, I wait in my monk factory. I'm training this guy up. I want to let him loose soon. He's brilliant. Because basically his schizophrenia is almost gone. Because he was a person. Not a schizophrenic. A person who showed signs of schizophrenia. Are you depressed? You're not depressed. You're a person who suffers depression sometimes. You're a person, for goodness sake, much bigger than the depression. Is your partner 
Is your partner an adulterer? If you, they've cheated on you and you think you're an adulterer, you're a cheat, then you won't be able to live with them anymore. There's no such thing as an adulterer or a liar. There's a person who's told a lie. There's a person who's cheated. They've got two bad bricks in the wall, but look at the other ones. And you can forgive them and live with them. If you understand that, you understand a huge amount on how we get rid of these problems in life. So especially in prisons. You know, you can put yourself in a prisoner's shoes. They have to wear these clothing specific to jails. In Australia it's green. I think in US it's this bright orange. I don't know what it is over here in uh, UK now. You wear that that special clothes. You've got a special way of relating to other people. You're in these cells with bars. Is everything around you is reinforcing the idea I am a criminal. No wonder they become criminals. Please take the bars away. Make sure they wear ordinary people's clothes. Treat them as people, and they become people. Treat them as murderers, they become murderers. That's how it works, obvious. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So that's the other thing, you know, becoming a monk, you can see all these things and you can change the system. Yep. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, for one year before I became a monk, I was a school teacher. And trained to be a school teacher was a very famous experiment which was done, sort of here in UK. There was a class of, there was a school, and in one year there was two classes in one year, I forget what year it was, maybe 13 or 14 year olds. And at the end of the year, they gave them the examination, the test, on which they would decide who would go in which class for the next year. But this time, they never published the results. There's only two psychologists and the headmaster were, were in on what was happening. Because they gave them examination, they marked them. But what they did was a child who came top went in the same class as a child who came fourth and fifth, eighth and ninth, 12th and 13th, 16th and 17th. The children who came 2nd and 3rd went in the same class as 6th and 7th, 10th and 11th. They split the classes up as evenly as possible. And they tried to choose classrooms which had equal facilities and teachers as best they possibly could who had equal ability. They made everything as equal as possible except for one thing. They called one class A and the other one class B. That's all. And of course, everyone assumed that the ones who went into class A were the ones who got the top half from the examination. They were A-class kids. And those who went in class B were the dummies. The parents thought that. The ones, the parents of the kids who went in class A said, look, I don't know how you did that. You know, you've been messing around all year. You haven't been doing much work, but well done. Carry on. 
And some of the other poor kids, look, no more TV, no more sort of video games. You're in class B. Do better. Even though they were just no second and third. Because even the parents looked at them as class B kids. And the teachers taught them as if they were class B kids. They didn't push them so far. They, the level of their instruction was much lower than the ones in class A. And after 12 months, they gave them another examination, as they would always do. And they found the children who were in class A did so much better than the children in class B, as if you'd chosen the top half from the, first, the year before. Literally, they'd become class A kids, because that's what you called them. And the other kids became class B kids. That's what they thought they were. And they became the second tier. That was a very chilling psychological experiment on education. You, you call your husband, your partner, a class B man, he will become a class B man. You call yourself a class B meditator and you'll become a class B meditator. That's part of anatta, the sense of self and how it's conditioned and how it creates. It's amazing just the ability for the mind to create anything. If you believe you're no good, you can never succeed. Never. If you believe you're schizophrenic, that's it. You've been sentenced and it's life. If you believe you're a criminal, everyone's telling you you're a criminal. Everyone tells you you're a sex offender. You become a sex offender. That's one of the reasons why people released from jail reoffend. That's who they think they are. And look, I'm not just saying this, it works. I got one of the greatest compliments of my life when I received a call from a prison officer in Australia. He said, Ajahn Brahm, can you please come back to teach in my prison? And I said, I'm too busy. I'm an abbot. I have to go all over the world. I just don't have the time. I sent someone else. He said, No. I want you. I said, why me? You know, that's what you always say. He said, because I've noticed something unique. I've been a prison officer all my life. I'm about to retire soon. All the prisoners who went to your class never come back again. That really really moved me. This was a prison officer of many years. He said, those who come to your class, once they're released from jail, I never see them again. They're gone. You're doing something. And I thought, what am I doing? And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm telling you, you're a person, not a prisoner. Same if you go and see someone in hospital. Are they a sick person? Or are they a person who is sick? They're a person who has a sickness. So when you go and see someone in, in hospital, please never talk to the sickness. Never go and say the most stupid words of a human being. How are you feeling today? And that really is dummy speak. They're in hospital. They're sick, stupid. And talk to them about something else. Anything else. The sorts of things you talk to them if you're just having a cup of coffee, just going around for a cup of tea. Just anything. And just like I was counselling this Tibetan nun, no, this is your Aussie nun. No, I don't care what sect of Buddhism you're from, or even if you're a Buddhist. 
So she was dying of cancer, so I was counselling her. She came to stay in my monastery for a while. Eventually she had to go into the hospice. It was her last you know, weeks of life. And she called me one day. She said, look, I'm going to go soon. And I took that seriously because people know. They know if they've only got a few days to, to go. And she was totally accurate. Saying in three days' time she was dead. So she said, can you come and see me? So I dropped everything I was doing and just got in the car. An hour and a half to the hospice. Arrived there, but you know in hospices, if you ever visited them, you can't just barge into someone's room. These are very, very sick people. So I had to check in with the duty nurse first of all. So I come to see this nun. She said, well, I'm terribly sorry. You can't. So why not? She said she's given explicit instructions. She doesn't want any visitors. So when she just called me you know, an hour and a half ago. That's why I've come. She said, look, we must respect our patient's wishes. But I'd come all the way from an hour and a half. And she got very angry. Now, as a Buddhist, don't be too passive. I stood my ground. I wasn't aggressive. I was assertive. So please be assertive. You don't need to be aggressive and punch people, but stand your ground. So I argued with her. I said, why? And she really got angry at me. She said, come over here. So I followed her. And we went to this patient's room. And there, actually on the outside was this big sign. Absolutely no visitors. Written in a big sign on the door. And the duty nurse said, see? And I looked. And under, <laughs> this is true. Underneath, in small words, were except Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this, but you know I enjoyed it. I told that nurse, see? <laughs> you know, I want some fun as a monk. Okay, it's the wrong thing to do. I shouldn't have done that, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I couldn't miss that opportunity, see? And so she went off in the huff and I went in. And then I asked this now, why did you write that, that note on the door? Why did you say absolutely no visitors except me? What's the difference? And then she said, you're the only person here who doesn't talk to my sickness. You don't ask me how I am or what's the prognosis or what's going on. I, everybody does. That makes me really sad. You come in here and tell me jokes or just talk about all sorts of stuff. Just like, you know, I was just an ordinary person, you know, you're having tea with. And they tell me the latest joke. And I learned a lot from that. Because if you're in hospital, you just you know, your friends are visiting, you just want the latest gossip, you know, who's winning the football, or you know, whatever else you talk about, that's what you want to talk about. You want to spend time with a friend. The doctors and nurses talk to the sickness, that's their job. Your job is to talk to the person and remind them they're much, much bigger than any sickness. Do you get it? Is that okay? Yeah, you've got another hand going up. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely so. Having a bit of fun and games is great in the evening because it actually gives you happiness and just gets you, kicks you out of your rut. Because sometimes the rut gets so serious. Now look, there are two types of meditation. Now sometimes I ask people what it is, but please never answer a question which I ask. They're always trick questions. 
People say, Samatha Vipassana. No, that's not what I mean. The two types of meditation are called Second Noble Truth Meditation and Third Noble Truth Meditation. Buddhist Four Noble Truths. Second Noble Truth is craving leads to suffering. Third Noble Truth, letting go of craving, leads to peace and happiness. If you're having a hard time suffering, getting frustrated, you, sir, have just been doing Second Noble Truth Meditation. Suffering has a cause. You've been wanting something, stupid. And that's not recommended. Second Noble Truth Meditation is not recommended at all. So if you've been having a hard time, if you've been wanting something again, that's the problem. When you get very peaceful, well done. You've been doing Third Noble Truth Meditation. Great, you've been letting go of craving. So every time it gets peaceful and still, why? You've been letting go of something. Congratulations. You've been practicing Third Noble Truth Meditation, the way to Nibbana. Fabulous. You know, it's such a simple teaching and that will stop so much suffering meditating in this hall. Instead of pushing, 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 suffer, 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 and not knowing what you're doing or why you're suffering, just basic teaching the Buddhism, second and third noble truth, it must be because you've been wanting something. The Buddha doesn't lie. He was a smart fellow. Find out what you've been wanting and stop it. And then all of that suffering will disappear. I want to be peaceful. Look, one of my key experiences, about six years as a monk, Now I've been meditating years before I became a monk, and I found this monastery in the north of Thailand. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It had caves. People would leave you alone all day. They'd feed you good food for a change. And it was ideal in every way. And I was there by myself, so I had no one else to tell me what to do. I had a wonderful time for the first couple of weeks, but then my mind started getting restless. And I started thinking about too many things. I started thinking of what I call unmonkish thoughts. You know, old girlfriends, you know, sex, romance, even weird stuff. Now, I, was, I really wanted to become a monk. And uh, I loved this lifestyle. And I said, stop it. You know, and when I tried to stop these stupid thoughts, they just kept on coming in. I tried to watch my breath, and just after a few minutes, all these thoughts about sex would just come in. And it was just so frustrating. And I had no one to talk to, no one to get advice from, and it was very difficult. And it got to such a bad state one day, I thought I was going crazy, that I went to the main hall, and there was a Buddha statue there, I bowed. Now remember, I was a scientist, I was a hard-nosed rationalist, I didn't believe in all this superstition you know, associated with Buddhism, but nevertheless I bowed to the Buddha and asked for help. And the thought came to my mind, let's do a deal. Because I was a Westerner, we do deals. And the deal was this. I'd allow my mind to think whatever it wanted to. Sex, weird, kinky stuff, I don't care. From 3 to 4 p.m. every day. If you want to think that, I'll give you the opportunity to do so. The rest of the day you watch your breath. Now that, that really sounded fair. You know, just let my mind be free for a while. And it had its play. Now come back and meditate properly. So 3 to 4 was my anything goes time. You know, it didn't work. 
my mind was still as crazy as, as ever. I really tried to stop it and it wouldn't. Look, three to four, wait, and you can do whatever you want. But it wouldn't. And by the time three o'clock came, I was really tired. So I went up to my room and I leaned against the wall. You know when you're tired meditating all day, you just lean against the wall, put your feet out and say, okay, whatever you want to think about now, really, ex-girlfriends, sex, anything you want to think about, you can. I'm not going to stop you now. And for the next hour, I watched every breath without missing one. It was so peaceful. <laughs> That's true. You know, it really taught me a lesson. You know, what it taught me was because I was trying to get rid of these thoughts, I was actually feeding them. When I really let them go, it was peaceful. There's no such thoughts anymore. It was brilliant. And I should have known that. But, you know, a stupid monk. You know, you're trying to control things and you're just making them worse. You know, that's why those thoughts were coming in. Because I was trying to stop them. Just let them be. And they disappear. That's how the mind works. So it's most peaceful. So now, just the thought comes, oh, if you want to come in, that's fine with me. Come in. Stupid thought. I said, what? You're not going to get angry at me and, and trot stop me? I said, no. And it goes, go somewhere else. I'm no fun. <laughs> That's how things work. There's a key story from the Buddha. It's one of my favorite stories which works in your meditation, when your meditation is really going bad, so you think. And this is from the Udana. It's the story of the monster who came into the Emperor's palace. And one day there was an emperor he was away, he's actually listened to a talk by a Buddhist monk, I think. So he was out of the palace, and while he was away, this monster came in. He was really frightening and big and menacing, so much so that all the guards who were supposed to stop people entering, they just froze in terror, allowing this monster to walk right into the middle of the palace and sit on the emperor's throne. And at that, the guards, ministers, everybody got really upset. Get out of here. That's not where you're supposed to sit. That's against the rules. Get out. Was that a good impersonation of anger? Because you know, as a monk, I'm not allowed to get angry. So when I tell stories, and it's really good fun, I can do things which I'm not really supposed to do and get, ah, <laughs> and play. It's really sort of, you know, letting things out. <laughs> but anyway, get out of here. You don't belong. And those few words... Acts, even thoughts of anger, and that monster grew an inch bigger, more frightening, and actually the smell coming off him got worse, and his language got worse. And that really upset all the people in the palace. They threatened him, they got out their swords, clenched their fists, made threats. But every unkind word, deed or thought, the demon just got an inch bigger, more ugly, more smelly, more offensive. And by the time the emperor came back, this demon was huge. And it took up half the hall. And the, sm the frightening, he was so terrifying that not even Steven Spielberg's with DreamWorks could manufacture something so ugly and frightening. And as for the stench, it was such a bad smell coming off that monster that even the maggots were throwing up being sick. To make a maggot sick, that really has to be a bad smell. <laughs> and the language. The language was worse than you'd hear in the pubs of London after England got beaten in the World Cup. And 
language was terrible. But when the emperor came back, the reason he was emperor because he was smart. As soon as he saw the situation, he said to the demon, Welcome. Thank you for coming to visit. Has anyone got you a cup of tea yet? And just those few kind words, the demon shrank an inch, was less ugly and less smelly, less offensive. And so everyone realized their mistake. They came up to him. What type of cup of tea you want? You know, we have Lipton's, we have Earl Grey, we have peppermint, we have green tea. It's good for your health. Do you want sugar, honey, or nothing at all? Would you like a foot massage? He had such big feet that three or four people went up just to give him a foot massage. And that was so nice. Some people gave him a neck massage. He had such a huge head. He obviously had very sore soldiers just over there. But, oh, that feels nice. Someone asked me if he wanted something to eat. Do you want a pizza? You know, monster size, please. And every kind, every kind word, kind deed, kind thought that demon grew an inch smaller, less likely, less smelly, less offensive. And soon he was back to the size when he first came in. But they never stopped. They kept on with the kindness until that demon was just so tiny. One more act of kindness and that monster vanished completely away. That's how they got rid of that monster. And the Buddha, when he told that story, actually he did mention about the foot massage and the pizzas. I added that one in. But it was basically what he said. (laughs) He said, we call that an anger-eating demon. It feeds on anger. Give it anger and it gets bigger, uglier, more of a problem. There are many anger-eating demons in your world. Sexual thoughts. Get out of here. You don't belong. I'm a monk. They get a inch bigger. More of a problem. Sleepiness. Sloth and torp. I don't want to be sleepy. Get out of here. It gets worse. Depression. I don't want to be depressed. Another anger-eating demon. Even, and this is radical but it's true, many cancers. Get out of here, tumor. You don't belong. And it gets an inch bigger. More of a problem. There are so many angry-eating demons in our world. Instead, thank you, tumor, for coming into my body. Welcome. It's a tough thing to do. But my God, it works. The stress, the negativity is gone. Welcome. Welcome, stupid mind. Bad thoughts. Welcome. Many of those things are anger-eating demons. You take off the anger, they get less and less and less and less, smaller and smaller, and they're gone. That's what happened when I tried to get rid of those stupid thoughts. With anger, they got worse. When I gave them metta, loving-kindness, come in, you're okay. They vanished. Try that. That's Dhamma. That's wisdom. It works. The angry eating demon story in the Udana of the Pali Suttas. Question? Comment? Yeah, in the back. Very good. But everything else 
Yeah. Indeed. Making fear a friend, yes, it's true. A lot of times when you come across fear, especially in the meditation retreat, well done. It means that you're on the edge of an insight. Every time an attachment is threatened, is about to disappear, that's called fear. You're about to lose something which is precious to you your life, your control, your wisdom, whatever else it is, your reputation, all part of your sense of self. That's being about to be taken away from you. Fear happens just before you have to let go of something. And that's the whole path, is to let go of all these attachments as much as you possibly can. And fear is a good sign. It's working. So we welcome fear as part of the path of detaching, of letting go. Letting go, especially of control. It takes a lot of guts to sit here and do nothing. We think it's all going to go wrong. Just like if you're driving on the motorway and you're the driver and you take your hands off the wheel and the feet off the steering wheel. What's going to happen? But there's a much better simile which someone told me years ago. You know the birds around this house they're now up in the trees, sleeping. Could you go to sleep in the trees, totally relaxed, or you be afraid of falling off, especially in the wind? Because when the wind blows, those trees sway precariously. And I thought that when those trees blow, the birds all have to wake up to grip onto the trees because they'd be so afraid of falling off. And I was surprised after a storm I never see birds at the bottom of the tree having fallen off. I know if I went to sleep on the top of a tree I'd fall off in the wind. Until someone actually told me what happens. When a bird roosts on a branch or a twig of a tree, the more it relaxes and lets go, the more its claws close up. Because the default state of those birds' claws, when it really lets go, is very contracted. The more it lets go, the more it closes up. In the morning, when the bird wakes up, it has to pull forth effort to open its claws. That takes trying. Letting go is the place when it's most stable and safe. Effort, fear, it opens up the claws and that's when it falls off. So eventually you find the more you let go, the more stable you are. The safer you are, the more peaceful your meditation. You don't have to be the control freak. In Gaia House, you don't have to control everything. You are indispensable, Andy. If you go on holiday, you'll probably go even better. That's what happened now in my monastery. I'm away. It's probably doing very, very good without me. Do you know in Jerusalem, I've got the article in my room in Australia, in Jerusalem the doctors, all the doctors went on strike for three weeks. During those three weeks, the death rate plummeted. (laughs) It's true, it happened. When the doctors weren't messing around with people, 
<laughs> They're much healthier. Any doctors here? Great. Being here means there's less... <laughs> Have you ever noticed when the traffic lights go out, the traffic flows more smoothly? What's going on there? When you let go and don't control so much, your life flows more smoothly. When you try and control things and make them happen, you mess up. After a while, we realize when we let go, things go well. When we get tense, we make too many mistakes. That's why... In my monastery over in Australia, one of our major rules is that you are allowed to make mistakes. It's a brilliant rule. When you're allowed to make mistakes, people don't make so many. When you're punished for making mistakes, people make much more. Why? Because we're afraid. When we're afraid and we have fear, we make more mistakes. You can do whatever you want, you don't make mistakes anymore. So it's again, fear is a very powerful part of stupidity, ignorance, stops people becoming enlightened. Don't fear anything. Just be someone who's actually, the, the word for effort or energy, virya, virya actually comes, it's related to a party word vira, which means hero. And actually the energy or the effort in Buddhism is actually heroic effort. It's not just effort, heroic effort. And the idea is a hero is someone, in those days, a soldier goes into battle, sacrifices their whole life. Or, you know, these people who, you know, they jump into the, the ocean and they risk their whole life saving somebody else. Now that is the sort of effort required in the Eightfold Path. Heroic effort. Effort to sacrifice everything, to let go of the whole world. Fearless effort. That's what gets you enlightened. So face that fear. You've got, you got nothing to lose anyway. <coughs> Give you an example of that. I fly around the world a lot. And some of my disciples were very concerned when all these terrorists were getting on the aircraft and blowing up the aircraft. So they said, look, you know, you shouldn't go on the aircraft so much, it's dangerous. But I counter said, look, I am not afraid of dying in an aircraft explosion at 30,000 feet. And the reason I'm not afraid is because there are three advantages, benefits of dying in an aircraft explosion at 30,000 feet. The first benefit is instant cremation. If you've ever organized the cremation of your mother or father or grandparent, it's a hell of a time. It takes so much time and so much money, days and days and days. An aircraft explosion is done on the spot, free, brilliant. Second advantage is not just free, actually because of insurance, your family makes money out of your death. <laughs> so they get a payoff about you dying, spend about to spend all their savings. You know, it's really expensive funerals in our modern times. Cost a fortune, like many thousands of pounds. So the second advantage, actually your family gets some money out of your death for a change. And the best advantage, if you die at 30,000 feet, you're so close to heaven, it's easy to go the rest of the way, no matter what you've been doing. <laughs> okay, that's a joke. But anyway, 
Anyway, you know, why fear? Why are you afraid? You've got nothing to lose. They say one of the worst fears is public speaking. I do this all the time. I'm not afraid. You know why I'm not afraid? Because, you know, if you like my talk, if you like my jokes, that makes me happy. If you hate them and you think it's a stupid talk, that makes me happy because I can go back to my monastery and meditate and be peaceful for a change. You know, just like I can go on retreat, just like you've been doing. I don't have to work so hard. So for me, it's always a win-win situation, whatever happens. So I'm not afraid. Same if you go and you go to a job interview or anything else happens. There's this brilliant story of the the king who went hunting. Once upon a time, a king went hunting. He went with his entourage, and on the hunt, he scratched his finger. So he called his doctor over, who was always with him, and said, "You better look at." Oops, I've got some cramp. He said, "You better look at this um, finger, doctor. It's scratched." So the doctor looked at the finger and uh, put a band-aid on it. And the doctor said, is that enough? Is it going to be okay? And the doctor replied, good, bad, who knows? And that was you know, a bit strange, but the, you know, the king was happy hunting. When they got back to the palace, the king had to call the doctor back again because the finger got infected. It was all red and um, blown up. So the doctor took the band-aid off, you know, cleaned up the wound, put some ointment on and put, put, put a proper bandage on the wound. And the king said, is it going to be okay? And the doctor said, good, bad, who knows? And that wasn't really reassuring. And so the doctor started to doubt this stupid doctor. So the king started to doubt the doctor. And actually he had good reason, because a few days later, the wound was so infected, the doctor had to amputate the finger. And that really upset the king. So the king, beginning a king, he threw the doctor in jail himself. You stupid doctor. All this good, bad, who knows business. I've lost my finger because of you. Now I'm going to put you in jail. What do you think of that, doctor? And the doctor replied, being in jail, good, bad, who knows. That's a really crazy, doctor. Anyway, a few weeks later, when the wound was healed, the, doc- the king was out hunting again. And this time he was following some animal, got separated from the rest of his party, got lost in the forest. And wandering around in the forest, he ran into the indigenous forest tribe who captured him because it was one of their holy days and they wanted to make a sacrifice. And now they had the best sacrifice, a king. So they took him to their priest and the priest tied him to a tree. They did all the mumbo-jumbo dancing and the priest was just about to cut the king's throat as a human sacrifice to their god when the priest suddenly realized, hold on! This man has only got nine fingers. He's not perfect enough to sacrifice to a god. Set him free. So they set the king free. And the king realized, my goodness, the doctor was right. It was good that I lost a finger. Otherwise I'd be dead now. Losing a finger has saved my life. It was good. And so immediately when he got back to the palace, he went straight down to the dungeons And he released the doctor, saying, Terribly sorry, I never realized all this good, bad, who knows. You don't know if it's going to be good or bad. Because I lost a finger, you saved my life. But I'm really sorry, doctor. I should not have put you into jail. It was a bad thing I did put you into prison. And the doctor said, What do you mean a bad thing, being in prison? If you hadn't thrown me in jail, 
I would have been with you on that hunt. I would have been captured. I've got all my ten fingers. <laughs> so, whatever happens to you, you have a terrible retreat. Good, bad, who knows? If your husband runs away with your best friend, is that good or bad? Who knows? If you get cancer, is that good or bad? <laughs> who knows? And I say that having counseled and being with many people who have been through cancer, many, many, many times, it surprised me. People with cancer said it was the best thing that ever happened to them. I can't say that. I'm repeating what I've heard many, many times. They really learned the meaning of life and what was really important. Very hard experience, but worth it. Good, bad, who knows? If you lose your job, is that bad? Good, bad, who knows? If you lose your job, maybe you can become a monk or a nun now. We need more bhikkhunis, don't we, in England? <laughs> so good, bad, who knows? That means you don't have any fear anymore. I don't know what happens. You like the talk, you don't like the talk. I die tonight. Whatever happens, good, bad, who knows? This one guy I met, he came to see me. He said what changed his life. He was a businessman and he went to Mumbai to do some business. Time to actually to leave and go back home. So he ordered a taxi and to take him to the airport. The taxi driver got lost driving him to the airport. And he's looking at his watch and the time was running out. He looked like he was going to miss his plane. But in Mumbai airport, there's so many planes are delayed. He thought no, there's still a chance he might board his aircraft because it might be delayed. But when that stupid taxi driver finally found the way to the airport, he realized he was too late for his plane. He missed his plane because he actually saw it take off. And he swore that taxi driver, you stupid taxi driver. And as he was swearing at the taxi driver for making him miss his plane, he saw the plane come down, crashed, with everybody dead. Thank you, taxi driver. You're the most wonderful taxi driver. And that changed his whole life, he told me. It's these experiences. He thought it was such a bad thing to miss his plane. But it did save his life. Don't complain about what happens to you. Even if it's you think it's unfortunate, a terrible tragedy. You don't know what might have happened without that. Good, bad, who knows. Then there's no more fear. And even making choices. It doesn't matter what choice you make in life. You go left, you go right. It's just a different journey, that's all. Not a better journey, not a worse journey. Just different, that's all. So that's why it's very easy to make decisions. You just make them. Whatever happens is fine. There's no such thing as good decision or bad decision. That's another thing with ordaining the bhikkhunis. Was it a good decision or bad decision? I don't know. It's just a decision. That's the path I decided to take. So you know, it's make, make really easy to make decisions then. So that's fearlessness. You always make it work, whichever way you... So those of you thinking of getting married, it doesn't matter who you marry, he'll do. She's okay. 
Just make it work. <laughs> Do you ever choose your children? Those of you who have kids, this amazing being comes out of your tummy and you'll love that being for the rest of your life. You don't choose. You look for a partner in life. You take them out, you check them out, you test drive, you live together for a while before you commit. You go through all that checking and still you don't love them unconditionally. Isn't that weird? Kids, you just can love them unconditionally just because they come out of your tummy. Men, women, you choose, you choose, you choose, you choose, you select and you still can't love them. What's going on? <laughs> it's great being a monk because I'm outside of all this and so I can really tease all of you. <laughs> Sorry? I was a son, yeah, but I've disappeared now. Okay, it's almost 10 o'clock. What time are you supposed to go to bed? What time is lights out? Are we breaking the rules? Broken the rules. Is that good? Bad? <laughs> Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so I think that's enough for tonight. So those of you who have visited, thank you for coming. Those of you who are meditating here, please enjoy your meditation. Have a nice time. And just, great, just please remember the two types of meditation. Second Noble Truth and Third Noble Truth meditation. You're having a hard time. You've done Third Noble Truth. Second Noble Truth, stupid, remember? You're wanting something. Stop wanting, it's very peaceful. What do you want anyway? Relax, enjoy. When you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. Brilliant saying. When you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. You already have enough peace. Don't want any more. Then you have more peace. Okay, enough for tonight. So what do we do now? Side to side or bow or whatever. <laughs>